0: Hello and welcome. I'm Elizabeth Turp, a counsellor, trainer and writer.
1: And I'm Paul Gorns, a careers advisor, trainer and lecturer. And this is How We Care.
0: Conversations about what it takes to help people for a living.
1: We are two experienced and committed helping professionals who are passionate about finding the best ways to take care of the people we help through our work and to support helping professionals to take care of themselves.
0: So if you're a counsellor, careers advisor, coach, social worker, medical professional, a learning and development or HR professional or any other skilled helper or aspire to be one, this podcast is for you. Let's reflect on how we care. Hello and welcome to episode eight of How We Care. Our topic today is the courage of the person-centred approach. Um, So before we get into that meaning of that topic, I'm just going to give a little overview about what we mean by the person-centred approach. Um, So as a therapist and a careers guidance professional, we have slightly different roles, but what we've learned over the time of talking to each other on many different topics is our approach to our work has a very similar person-centred base, but it's not exactly the same as what counsellors mean by pure person-centred. So I'm just going to give a quick overview of my kind of career development, I suppose, and that'll help the listeners to understand exactly what we mean on this episode. So I was trained as a person-centred counsellor, I'm not going to get into too much detail about that because a lot of people listening will already understand what that means. But base, the basic philosophy is um, Carl Rogers' approach to counselling is that we basically believe that the client knows best, um, and as a as a therapist or counsellor, it's our job to kind of help the the client to find their own answers, um, and that we go with what the client kind of feels um and that's achieved by various core conditions that are in place, which we might touch on later. We've talked about them in other episodes. Um, and so that does form the basis of my practice but over the many years because I initially trained almost 25 years ago and over the time I've done various other trainings I've trained done some CBT training training in mindfulness IPT all kinds of other approaches so I would actually describe myself as an integrative counsellor now Um, but what I would say is that all the work I do has a person-centred base so what I mean by that is that I still operate from the perspective of whatever the person in front of me needs, whether they know or not at the time, it's my job to help them to find that. It's not my job to decide what we're going to be doing or how we're going to be working together. It's, a, it's more of a collaborative way of matching what I, I have to offer to what the client actually wants. How they want to work and all of that and so in that sense it's it's a person-centered way of working so what does that bring up for you Paul as, as somebody doing helping work with various different people
1: yeah um like you I was trained with an eye on uh, the person-centered approach um back in the late 80s um and so um the fundamental principles of that very similar to what you said was in terms of um, career planning and career decision-making, um, the client, uh, whether it be a school pupil, university student, um, an unemployed adult, uh, was the key decision-maker and they had autonomy to uh, make the right decision for them. And our role was to... Um, very much like yours, recognise what they needed at the time, um, offer a way of supporting them to get the outcome that they were seeking or to decide what outcome they might be seeking Um, uh, with a recognition of their individuality and and their individual circumstances. Uh, Historically, I think, although I say I was trained in that approach, Historically, careers services had, uh, I'm I'm really oversimplifying here, uh, the kind of history of it, but uh, came from a background of the careers officer or the careers advisor was Mm. someone who was an expert who would assess, particularly in in a school setting, for instance, uh, assess a young person's capability, background, likely educational qualifications and say you know based on on what I've seen I think uh, I would advise you to do this that or Mm. the other so uh, I think the profession still carries some of that baggage Mm -hmm. even now and there are some contexts in which that approach um, can actually be helpful you know a more directive Mm. approach so um, you know it was there for a reason uh, but I, I think definitely most of the practitioners um, that I've worked with, the practitioners that I train now in my role at Coventry University, uh, we, we're very much focused on uh, developing a person-centred approach as, mm. as a key uh, practice.
0: Wonderful. And do you know what? That brings up like a, a kind of overview of my profession and related therapy professions which is it's actually very similar. So there is, you know, lots of people who do work in a person-centered way. But equally, there's lots of kind of theories and approaches which are much more directional, even to the point of being like literally manualised. I mean, that's a big thing in the NHS now. There's manualized therapy, which has a a complete structure and it's not deviated from in any way. Um, and then you have like different levels of, you know, psychiatrists and things like that. Some of them are person-centered. So it's not to say that none of them work like that but that can be a lot more kind of expert kind of oh this is what this person needs to do and also services can operate like that sometimes where there's an assessment process and the practitioner assessing decides what approach the person needs and then it's pot luck for the client then who they end up with if it's within an organizational setting you know if it's in a private setting um, and you've kind of, if the client has some understanding of what they need, because obviously the average person who isn't therapy trained doesn't know the differences between all the different types of, therapy. why would they? Because there's hundreds of them, you know, but if they have a vague idea or they've read something, they'll usually sort of try and seek out someone who sort of feels right And then hopefully eventually they'll hit on the right person. That's a good match. But if you're in an organisation and you've been told either because someone's decided it or because in some settings you have to go through like the first level of treatment before you can get to the more specialised levels, you can end up having something that's very far from person centred, which, as you've just said before, can work. There are people who that really does work for and there are people who want that. But in my experience, what I've I've found so lovely and fascinating, especially since I left the NHS, so after doing like 12 years in the NHS, I'm now eight years out in private practice. So obviously I've got a little bit more, well, a lot more flexibility in terms of how long I can work with people, but also, you know. I suppose it's not that much more autonomy because we did have autonomy, but, you know, I can, uh, what I've found is that the vast majority of my clients are actually wanting a person-centred approach, which I find really interesting. Cause I can do, I can do all kinds of other things that are much more structured, but people don't want that in my experience or the people that come to me don't want that at least. So, yeah.
1: So, um, because we've titled this uh, this session "The Courage of the Person-Centered Approach."
0: Yes.
1: Um, what would you say is, uh, from a practitioner's perspective, from a helping professional's perspective, what is um, the courageous element in, okay. in, in doing a person-centered approach? Why is it? Why does it take courage?
0: Okay. I mean, that, yeah, that sounds quite dramatic, doesn't it? But it's something about it really feels true. So. Um, I think it's I think it came out of the feeling that you really don't know what's coming and you don't know where it's going to go and I'm not saying that doesn't happen with more structured therapies but what what does happen in the person-centered approach is you can let it go wherever the client needs it to go whereas in in a more structured approach you would have like You know, a formulation maybe in CBT where you would be working on the presenting problem, and then I mean, again, not all practitioners work in a rigid way. So I'm not trying to say that, but what I do know from talking to, you know, I like to talk to other therapy colleagues a lot, and that you know, for example, if a client of mine is working with me on a particular set of issues, because there's always a lot of complex stuff, and then something happens to them in the week, and then they come to their next session. They're like really distressed about the thing that's just happened. That's the thing that we will work on in that session because that's what they need. That's what's occupying the them, you know. Whereas in other forms of working, that's sometimes not allowed. That's like that's deviating from the thing, (laughs) you know. And then again, I'm not saying everybody does that, but it's like, oh well, this is the task. We need to come back to the task. But so in in pure person centred kind of working, I I trust that the client knows what they, where they need to go, and that whatever comes up is necessary and always relevant. It's all, even if it seems to be something very different, it's always linked, you know, because obviously something that you know, distresses a person has always going to have some link to the other things that have distressed them, you know, or it's just really a really distressing thing in its own right and whatever in any space. Or, so I think what I mean by the courage of it is that you're, you're open to anything. You're, when you meet a new person, you are kind of you don't know what's coming um it's it's exciting sometimes it's a bit scary because sometimes I mean I guess the more experience you get, the less of this that happens. but sometimes you literally don't know what what you're going to find with a person and I think we've spoken about this maybe this came out of a recent example I'd had where somebody approached me and I, did, I, I, I tend to speak to people on the phone before I book them in because, you know, obviously I need to make sure that I'm a suitable person for them to work with, but they don't tell me all the things. And, you know, if if I speak to a person before the, they start the therapy and they give me a hint about what they want to work on, but they, obviously it's not necessarily appropriate to really get into it, and then they say something which kind of could be really serious and awful, you know, like they hint that they've done something appalling or whatever, then I'm like you know I don't know what that is do I so I'm using my instincts in that if I if I say to them oh yes you know I think I can work with you and whatever we'll book in a session I'm operating on many different levels in that process of saying to them that I can work with them and there's an instinctive thing going on there that because if somebody was hinting that they'd done something really dangerous or risky or I didn't feel comfortable to work with them I wouldn't then say it was okay to move forward to book in because that wouldn't work that wouldn't be helpful for them but yeah I've got i I've got an instinct that it's okay but I don't know what's coming I don't know what's going to come out and often clients don't really know what's going to come out when you do the first session do they because they might they might, they might know all the things. They might not intend to tell you all the things yet, because they might feel comfortable. But in my experience, most people do. They'll, they'll like maybe come in thinking, oh, "I'll just tell you an overview," and then they end up telling you, and it all kind of comes out. Sometimes they'll tell you something, and like obviously, a jo- the job of me is to reflect back what they're telling me, and if I can see patterns in that, then I might reflect back a pattern, and that 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 meant might be like really surprising to them. So they didn't, They don't realise what they're telling you, but they do They do know what they need to tell you, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so something about that, the coverage of it. it, it's, it and it also comes from knowing some therapists who've moved the other way, so they've trained person-centred, and then when they've been offered doing CBT training, which happens a lot in the NHS, they would then really love CBT for the structure. They, they'd like to know... If this is the presenting problem, then this is the formulation and this is what we do. I mean, some CBT is so structured that you've literally got 16 sessions. In the first two sessions, you do this. and the next four sessions, you do that. There's other IPTs like that as well. And for me, that doesn't, that doesn't really work for me because it's too bound, It's too restrictive. But some people love it because they like to know what they're doing and when they're going to do it. And, you know, that's the opposite of what I'm doing in a way, I think.
1: Does that make sense? It does make sense. There's the part of the courage. Then is almost a a surrendering of control. Yeah. And giving some control to the person you're helping, and um, being willing to accept, as you say, that you don't know. You 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 know you're not necessarily going to get a particular outcome. You might get no outcome, or you might get an outcome that surprises you.
0: Mm. Or you might get an outcome that they want, but that you you might think, oh, surely this person wants to be yeah. here. But actually, for them, the progress is quite small. But for them, it's profound.
1: Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, strikes me um, from a from a perspective of someone working with trainee careers practitioners mm. is. Um, Alongside the person-centred approach that we teach um, in relation to helping conversations, uh, another example of something we do is we do um, a module on labour market information. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that our practitioners get and develop over time is knowledge and expertise. And I'm sure that is true of -hmm. every helping profession
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you become familiar with and work with. A body of knowledge so you develop a level of expertise and I know I've probably fallen into this trap before and I know it's an easy trap to fall into where your expertise becomes your um sometimes becomes a crutch or a barrier because um the main part of what you're doing is imparting your knowledge to the person sitting mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. you when actually um while that knowledge can be brilliant to support them in 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 getting a positive outcome it's very easy to fall into the trap of you know to to show you my credibility and my professionalism I'm going Mm -hmm. to display my knowledge to you
0: okay yeah
1: tell you what I know Uh, and as I say sometimes that that is exactly what they need they want they want your knowledge and they ask for your knowledge um, but sometimes, as you say, if it's someone in a in a in a real dilemma, say about what future direction they want to go in, uh, what they may actually want is to be really, really listened to, to have their situation understood, mm-hmm. so that they can then work out for themselves mm. which way to go. And often, um, I think I referred to this in the very first podcast that we mm. did. But I remember mm. observing. Um, one of our students who I th- I remember th- thinking she said so little
0: yes. for most
1: of our conversation and so much of what she did was asking short but very very telling questions mm-hmm. and also the whole way she was in terms of her body language in terms of what I thought of as the quality of her attention to the person and what they were saying and mm-hmm and uh, tuning into their body language and their feelings. It was absolutely brilliant and, mm. um, you know, had a really positive outcome. So mm-hmm. she said she she displayed very little knowledge. Yeah. Um, but she had knowledge, of, you know, she suggested places that a person could look. She said, I'm going to send you some web links that you might find useful.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but it wasn't a case of, let me tell you mm. what I know about But this she gave idea. them
0: exactly what they needed. Yeah. And I think what's coming up for me with that is we're talking about empowering somebody in a very subtle way because what what that process does, it's to varying degrees according to where the person's actually up to. But I experience a lot of people who, for various historical reasons, don't have any self-confidence in their own choices, maybe aren't even used to having choices or options. So to have somebody who's like willing to support them to find like really what, what they actually want, even if they don't currently know it or know how to, that is, is really amazing. Because it, like it's, it's us having faith in that person, isn't it? We're sat there believing that they know somewhere deep inside them, they know what's right for them. And I know we have spoken about this on so many episodes, haven't we? That we are willing to work with them until they can access that and help them to access it. And even, you know, like I'm sure this happens with you as well. We, we said this last time, people will ask us what they should do sometimes and that's got to be thrown right out the window because it's not up to what we think is it it's it's how do we help them to find out what what they really want you know and I think yeah that that so by the end of you know however long they come for therapy someone can be totally transformed from being like really timid and always getting it letting everyone else make decisions for them to being someone who actually re- recognizes that they've got their own agency and that they, they have the rights and like to make decisions and the courage in their own knowledge and abilities and all of that and 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 how you like you said your student that's how that's done it's by it's very very subtle stuff it's being with and allowing the space isn't it
1: for that Yeah, I think that's a great way of expressing it, being with someone on a loan space. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and in some contexts, some work contexts, that can be difficult if you have a requirement to see, you know, 18, 20 people a day or you've got specific targets for outcomes. And I guess um, when we work as self-employed practitioners and determine our own time allocations and how many people we see,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um it's easier isn't it to do the person-centered approach
0: absolutely yeah yeah and yet it is possible to do it to some extent in a shorter form Absolutely. but by by having very sophisticated listening skills because obviously you know some of the people that listen to this podcast are not therapists you know they're social workers or you know but it having like really and nurses and things having having those really good listening skills and empathy it is surprising how how much you can connect with the truth of somebody yes. or or of course the opposite is that if you've got an encounter with a professional and their agenda dominates then the person sometimes doesn't even get to say what's what's truly brought them to the, the place and they leave going what just happened <laughs> don't actually understand what just happened there because I've got out of the room and I've been told something which doesn't even fit in any way what I what I wanted from that encounter, you know. So it's even the, the purity of trying to find out what why what, what's the person the person there, you know. What have they? I, it not no not not that everyone can always get their needs met, obviously, but to like have that acknowledged even is good sometimes to have it spoken about, you know.
1: Yes, and that you know I've certainly experienced that with you know say good doctor.
0: absolutely Absolutely.
1: you've had maybe 10 or 15 minutes at tops with them but you think and they really kind of got what I was they they, they got what I was worried about and they were able to help me reassure me give me some direction
0: Uh such a beautiful thing when that happens because you know it does happen there are some really good doctors out there Uh, that really that still makes me quite emotional to have that experience you know because you know when you have health stuff going on or you know I've got long-term health stuff so going to the doctor can still be sometimes quite a vulnerable thing to do so when you get one like you've just described who actually can do that and can really hear you because let's strip it back that's what we're talking about we are talking about really really deeply hearing somebody and not putting any other agendas onto that you know in, in all these different contexts and when that happens it is wonderful thing because it's a human interaction it's it's a pure kind of human meeting of two humans in a room isn't it and and using lots and lots of subtle stuff and a lot of empathy um and it might seem very simple but actually it's not not as common as it maybe should be in some of these interactions
1: Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on uh, something that comes from the Carl Rogers uh, Mm -hmm. in relation Mm -hmm. to the person-centred approach, which, again, I think we've discussed in previous episodes, Yeah, uh, which is the concept of unconditional positive regard. Oh, I'm so glad Uh, you brought that up, yes. And I think we've been touching or hinting at that in in the conversation so far, you know, about really listening to somebody, um, really wanting to know what, 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 what's on their mind um but um yeah the unconditional positive regard this idea of um i suppose put put most simply being able to rise above any judgment about somebody
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, as in a a negative judgment or or indeed an an overly positive judgment Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. on very little knowledge of the person um But also one of the things, you know, um, we discuss um, colleagues and and with our students as well is how difficult that can sometimes be because Mm -hmm. as human beings, we we all to an extent have our own, um, we develop our own judgments, we develop our own prejudices, our own opinions, our own ethics. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we may be in a position where we are helping somebody who kind of is on a comes at things in a different way to us mm-hmm. has a different approach to life maybe different opinions or we just have a reaction to something about the way they are which is not necessarily rational it's just mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a visceral human reaction so um, we spend quite a lot of time thinking about how do you combat that? How do you rise above that mm-hmm. to make sure that any judgment you have about the person is not um, colouring your judgment about your and, and how you approach the conversation? So I don't know if you, you've got any thoughts on that.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think the main thing with that is self-awareness, isn't it? That if you're, if you're not aware that you've done that and then it affects your the next thing that you say, a person that's completely different from if you have a visceral reaction because I mean it's a great word that isn't it because you're talking about you you know you you usually would have a bodily response to something you know say something somebody said they've done something you know not very great in the past or whatever or they've got I don't know let's use like uh, this hardly ever happens by the way but I guess it's a good example if somebody said something racist for example for me that would be one of my major issues I mean we won't get into how I would deal with that that's a whole lot of podcast I guess but you know that would bring up something but there's a difference between me reacting to that and me being aware of what it's bringing up for me and and that it's my stuff so there's something about owning it isn't there you have to own your own response to whatever is going on in front of you and you have to be able to tell the difference between something that's telling you what you should say next and something that's telling you about how you feel yourself about that particular thing. And that, you know, that's not easy. It's not very well I sat here talking about it. And then, you know, it's not that anyone listening to this could all of a sudden start doing that if they've not been able to do it before. There's a lot of work involved in developing good self-awareness, you know, like, you know, going to, regardless of your profession, going to your own therapy if if you find that there's lot you have lots of things that kind of come up for you in your work is, is a really good idea and obviously in my training that's kind of expected that you do that so you have it's kind of inbuilt that you develop that self awareness some people naturally have good self awareness don't they but others are completely oblivious <laughs> you know so so it is owning it it is being able to and and you know when you're in session with a person there's so many layers of things that are going on all at once so, um, and only one of them is what response did I just have to what this person has said? All the other things are go, you know, you're usually thinking about maybe three or four different things. So, obviously, you're listening to the person, you're like, you're responding to their like nonverbal cues, their body language, you're empathizing. You're also maybe adding what's just been said into the whole picture of what they've said generally, you're making links, patterns, and blah, blah, blah. So in all of that, you've got to decide what to say next. So I'm making this sound really hard. It doesn't feel like that. It's just, it's, if you think about it, it's actually really complex. But actually, it just happens. You know, it's just happening. I guess, again, the more experienced you are, the more natural that is. But it, yeah. within that, probably one of the most important things in that is, is trying to retain that unconditional positive regard. Because if you don't, you can ruin the process. If you deviate from that, or if you if you say something which is judgmental, or put a face that suggests your judgment, there's lots of different ways. I mean, I, what's coming to mind now is people I know, so friends or whatever, who I know in in my personal life who've had bad experiences with therapists who've said something judgmental. I, I was talking to a friend the other day. I won't say what she said. Don't want to identify. But she had therapy many years ago, and what a therapist said something to her which actually affected how she's lived the last 20 years of her life in in one of the most important areas of her life because she was very young at the time. And instead of... so, So what happened in the encounter for her was instead of the therapist being able to stay with the open position of exploration and allowing her to work through the thing, the therapist shut it down by making a closed statement that came from her own view of the issue i hope i'm making sense because i don't want to actually say what it was but i hope that makes sense so she and and so by doing that she shut it down because the therapist didn't have unconditional positive regard for the topic she had judgment she had fixed ideas about how a person should live and she well, it was kind of damaging. Yeah, it was, I mean, that happens all the time. That's just, you know, that's I've heard that so many times. Yeah, so it's like the, that's the opposite of it. And in, in order to not do that, we have to, A, be aware of our own responses and, B, we have to be able to put them to one side in the, in the work, don't we? And it's not easy. It's sophisticated. And I guess it's good that we're talking about this because if listeners feel that they have an issue with this or if they... You know, if they don't think they're very good at it or if it, we as as a therapist, we like we usually say there'll be one or two things that we find difficult to work with, you know, and we've all got our own reasons. But I'll just I'll, I'll disclose one of mine is I find it quite hard to work with a client who says to me that they've been unfaithful to their partner because that for me in, is one right. of my my value. And no, no, I'm just saying I can't do it, but I'm just illustrating that it's one of the things I find quite difficult because... Yeah you know, I, I think it's terrible. And I think, you know, whatever. So if that does come up for me, then that's something I have to work quite hard to stay with their experience and keep it open and, you know, continue to offer what's required. But the thing is, I know that that's a thing. I know that's one of my, you know, so I think it's got better over time. Let me just say when I first started working, I just couldn't cope with it at all. When I was very new, new to the work, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't work with somebody who's bringing that because I just can't stand it. Whereas now, obviously, I'm, I'm a lot older and I'm a lot more developed. But um, yeah, that's for me, is that, that's one of them. But there can also be things that you're not so aware of that do that, aren't there?
1: It's, it's interesting that I think that's a great example to give. Um, and completely, I can completely understand how you, you, you would feel that way because it's it, going back to what we said before, it's kind of a, a, a moral boundary. For yes. You, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And yet um, I wonder if there's a way in which something like that can be a trigger where we, our whole perception, if we're not careful, our whole perception of that person and their character and what they're like is, is shaped by that one thing. And I'm guessing um a lot of times if we can overcome that we may see um very different dimensions to that person um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know much more positive dimensions and that doesn't mean um condoning or 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 kind of agreeing with the behavior but seeing that behavior as a as a part of that person's experience and life yeah um and understanding there are all sorts of circumstances that lead to people doing things which they may or may not regret or may or may not mm-hmm. think are wise or we may think uh, are not very good. But that um, by taking the person-centred approach, we, we, we can see that from other perspectives and have a better understanding of them.
0: Absolutely. And there's so much coming up for you now you're talking about this. And one of the things is that the person-centered approach in Rogerian theory it's actually about the, the fundamental belief that people are striving to be the best they can be and to do good you know and my experience I mean it's so good doing this work in such a terrible historical period of history where there's so much horrible stuff going on in the world there's so much divisiveness and everything and I think the thing that I feel every day when I'm doing my work is that people are fundamentally good so what you've just said there is even if you work with a person who comes in and says oh I've done this I've done that I've treated this person like this that's never like I would say that categorically is never how then I I then see that person because there there there's so many more things you know and they're of course sat in front of me seeking to, to be better seeking help seeking to improve themselves you know and so what's also coming up and this is all linked of course is i've written this in in capital letters when i was thinking about what we wanted to cover today love it's actually about love for me this is controversial in in therapy world but for me it's about love like i have like a deep love of of humans people and it's actually coming from a place of Love and acceptance. It's, it's a shame. I was walking along yesterday thinking about this. It's like other languages have multiple words for love, don't they? So they have like, you know, erotic love and platonic love and, you know, all kinds. We don't. We just have love, right, which is useless. So, you know, I, I hope the listener understands that I don't mean that I want to marry or sleep with all my clients. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I am talking about a deep love and regard of people and the fact that I have the privilege of working and listening to the people's most like deepest experiences and that they trust me with that and so I start from a place of love and I do feel that I mean I I don't think all therapists do feel this by the way so in no way kind of setting expectations for listeners here but I think a lot of therapists do feel that I think that you know it's kind of what brings us to the work in the first place and so if you feel like that about people it's easier to have unconditional positive regard for them isn't it because you start from that and you hold that and even when a difficult thing comes it's only a part of it doesn't you know it's like a baseline yeah what do you think about that have I gone too far <laughs>
1: no i i think you've you've <laughs> summed that up really well because the there is definitely um a kind of reticence about using the word love in context other than you know i i i love my kids i love my family uh the sort of romantic yeah. kind of love um but it was occurred to me as you were speaking what you're talking about is is exactly what unconditional positive regard is. Unconditional yeah. positive regard is a is a kind of um, academic way of saying you 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 um, show love to the person, love in the sense that you were describing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I think I think that that's a really good. And I, I think I read somewhere recently. <clears throat> uh, sometimes we think of love as an emotion but it was saying love is a love can be an action love can be a way oh, absolutely. of mm-hmm. um, and it's not necessarily that it comes like a flash of light or it feels very natural it's also yeah. something you can work at mm-hmm. and what we're talking about when we're talking about as practitioners seeing past our prejudices and our judgments about people that's essentially what we're doing it we're practicing that positive yeah unconditional positive regard or to go down the controversial route you you could say we're practicing being uh, giving a loving response to that person yeah
0: it's to love yeah you're (laughs) providing the condition for that person to feel that they can't ruin it you know that they can take the risk to say whatever the thing is that they want to say to you and, and I think for me a lot of the people I work with have such internal self disgust and judgment about what they've done the power of me not doing that when they reveal whatever the thing is that they yeah. think is so awful it, it's just profound it's like it's mind-blowing it's like not only is like here is a human being Accepting me, regardless of the things, and and also by the way, the things are never as bad as they feel like they are. So you know, I, I don't, I've not worked with any murderers yet, so that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, even if I did, that would be interesting. But um, it's never, it's yeah. So you're you're providing the humanity of it, but you're also a professional person who is sitting there. And they they perceive this, by the way, this is not what I feel when I'm working with people. But you know, they've come to a professional. For help. And that professional, some people think, could have them committed, could call the police on them, could throw them out, could report them to social services, any number of things that a person, and some of those things, by the way, are true. So if somebody's telling me something about their family life or, you know, a potential abuse going on, it is true that I could call the police or social services that's very rare, by the way. Not, you know, but you no. Know, so that fear isn't completely irrational. You know, so for them to take feel like they can take the risk to say the thing and then do and then work on the thing immediately brings takes the power out of the thing because I'm with it. I'm there. I'm not running away. That's another thing. I'm not running away when a person says whatever the thing is. Whether it's something they've done that's bad or whether it's something that's happened to them that is so utterly awful and shocking, because obviously that is a thing that happens as well. People are telling me about the horrific abuse they've experienced or whatever. I still ain't running out the door. If I feel like I want to run out the door, then I attend to that feeling because obviously that's a visceral feeling, isn't it? I, I would, I mean, that's very rare that, that I've ever felt that. Maybe earlier in my career, I might have felt, because I, I can't cope with this, you know, yeah, I, I yeah. need to get, but I haven't ever done it. Um, so it's about being aware of what that's bringing up and why. It's like, what's the fear? You know, if you had a response like that, the fear might be, I can't cope with it, or I'm going to break down, I'm going to cry, I'm going to, you know, because sometimes you do feel very emotional because there's an empathy there and somebody's telling you something you know so to be aware of all of this stuff but the the um so I don't even mean well I do mean contracts but it's more than that the the agreement that is being made in doing the work with somebody is that you are you've agreed to be there you've agreed to sit with next to them alongside them that's another person centered kind of sort of idea that we're alongside the client in their journey we're not telling them how to go on their journey we're not telling them which direction they should we're alongside them to support them in the journey and the obviously the goal is that they go off on their own on the journey and we don't need to be alongside them anymore and that's kind of you know that's what this is all about isn't it yeah wow god this is this is getting I feel quite emotional this is getting more you know more powerful than I thought even this episode
1: (laughs) one of the things that um occurred to me while, while you were speaking because we were talking about the unconditional positive regard we were talk, talking about using the word love in a very specific way <clears throat> and you also mentioned um you know we're, we're professionals we're doing a professional job um and um one of the things that occurred to me and I think we've we've touched on this in other conversations is there is a there is a another side to the um to the opening up that happens in person-centered conversations, which is around being wary of maintaining um a sufficient professional distance and a sufficient mm-hmm, mm-hmm. barrier. It's it's a very, very um it's it's an, an interesting balance to strike, isn't it? Because oh, you, yeah. you know, certainly in, in your profession and to an extent in ours, you get people talking about their deepest feelings and deepest experiences maybe to someone who's listening to them in a way that they're not used to being listened to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is very positive but um we can we can develop bonds with people that we're helping but um maybe on occasion that bond there's a danger that that bond you know they might see it as oh this person's going to be my friend or Okay. Or, or taking yeah. it even further than that and so um I wonder if you'd say something about that in terms of your perception yeah of how we yeah. maintain that professional distance while yeah. still being open and helpful and empathic
0: mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up that is yeah that's so important because that I hadn't thought of that but that's so important to what we're talking about absolutely okay so that yeah, how, how am I doing that without crossing that line? That's, that's so important. Yeah, okay. So I think, um, although as a professional, my main way of being with people is of warmth and I try and kind of address the power difference in the relationship and I try to bring the professionalism right down, I also put in place, right from the first contact really really when I say first contact I mean the first email that someone sends me or whatever a really really strong message to people about what it is or not that I'm offering to them so for example I don't communicate with people out of office hours or at weekends I don't um I mean see this isn't even explicit it's just it's in the way that I respond to people I think other therapists struggle with this because they go like give too much and then a client can perceive that it's okay for them to cross boundaries and you know like email people email the therapist between sessions or what it, that never happens with me because a client knows that they're coming to me for a specific service which takes place within 50 minute sessions usually once a week right now in that 50 minutes all the things we've been talking about do occur there's a very strong human interaction there's a lot of emotion in the room is there but at no point do they get the idea that i'm their friend or that you know that that there's any kind of uh, this this is so hard to describe isn't it because it is a real human interaction and it is genuine i mean because that's obviously another one of the core conditions is congruence and genuineness so if whatever they're feeling about the way i see them is genuine you know that that unconditional positive regard i'm not pretending i feel i feel that on a deep deep level but it does not mean but I am able or want to take it outside of the boundaries of the session and the contract. So as long as a therapist is very clear in the way they contract in the way they behave. So say a client texts me at nine o'clock at night or emails me at nine o'clock at night. Cause that does sometimes do that about when they're booking in or whatever. If I answer I'm giving them the idea that it's acceptable for them to interact with me in my private time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do not answer, right? I answer the next business day. And just from subtle things like that, they know they know what they're getting. I mean this okay, this is kind of replicating um, sort of parental boundaries and the way that children learn safety. This is, like, this is a whole other episode isn't it but if you think about what a child needs to feel safe and to trust they do actually need boundaries they do actually need to know where they stand and I'm not in any way saying clients are like children I don't mean that But what I mean is in order to feel safe and in order to be able to be vulnerable and to get their needs met they have to know where they stand and so it's my job to settle that out and it's also so linked to that, and the answer so so this is such a great question. The other side of it is, what if I feel? You know, what if I feel occasionally? I do occasionally. I feel like, oh, I really want to be this person's friend. This person's really great, and this and that, and we get on really well, and this and that. Well, that is something on the very occasional time that's happened. I have to deal with it. Sometimes it's explicit in the work, by the way. So sometimes the client will mention it. And they'll they'll you know they'll say something about it and then we'll talk about it we're like, well, isn't it sad that we won't ever be able to be friends because that's not what we're doing here, and we'll mourn it in a way. That's that's happened a couple of times in my career where we've I've just had such a like I've got on so well with a person that that would be a thing if it wasn't for the, the roles, but that's fairly unusual. It's more often, it's totally my job to make sure that I hold that professional boundary. And so they know, you know, they know they might be feeling what you started by saying, which is so important. It might be the first time anyone's ever listened to them. And that is like absolutely profound. And it's so it's sad and it's emotional and it's, you know, it can bring up a lot of feelings. But in my experience of 20 years experience, as long as you hold certain kind of boundaries and ways it isn't misinterpreted, you know. And if a client does have feelings, because, again, that, that does sometimes happen, you know, sometimes a client can have feelings or want it to be more or whatever, then part of the work is to talk about that, you know, explicitly, not to go, oh, oh, oh what do I do? And, like, and just ignore it. You actually have to front it up, which is hard. <laughs> but you do because it's part of the work. If, if that's happening, it's in all likelihood nothing to do with, me because they don't know me like I don't sit around telling you know my clients what I'm into or who I am or what my life you know they know nothing about yeah, me. yeah yeah so they might so in you know again too many other concepts going on here but if in, if that's a transference that they're experiencing it's in all likelihood more to do with them than it is to do with the reality of me yes I'm providing something precious in that moment and in that process but I'm not I'm not showing them my full self so they can have a, a, like a, a genuine response to, you know, so, it, so it, for me, I've not found that to be too much of an issue because I'm very aware that it could be an issue and I, and I address it at all stages and I make it very clear and I make it safe. I make it, you know, and, and if it comes up, I deal with it, you know, but again, that's so complex. You could do a whole episode just on that tiny one thing, but I'm so glad you mentioned it because I, there's me banging on about love and all this I'm glad you've mentioned that because it might, it might sound like, oh, here's a person being so lovely to people and all that. And that, you know, what, how are they going to deal with it? It's it's not like that. It's not, it's not a gushing thing. It's not a, it's a thing that comes through all the, all the subtleties of the communication and the warmth, but it's not really, it's not even overtly said. It's just known. It's known on a deep level. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I guess related to that is the is it's coming back to the the fundamental intention of most helping professionals working with somebody mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. on a short term or longer term basis that the in the vast majority of cases or if not all cases that the, the kind of direction and intention is for them not to need you anymore
0: oh exactly point, yeah you know, so yeah
1: so um It's almost kind of like looking out for for signs that somebody may be be becoming almost dependent on on that person who listens to them and is always empathic. Yeah. Um, And but going back to what you said, I'd have to say in my own experience and talking to other people, we're talking about something that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In that most clients in most situations understand, you know, especially when when the kind of uh contracting or the kind of discussion at the initial stage is done in the right way they kind of understand that
0: exactly yeah yeah as long as you're not giving mixed messages because that's another thing and also i feel like i need to mention that we're kind of getting into the boundaries here of talking about if this is done badly there's massive potential for harm especially in the work that i do but i'm sure in and lots of other therapeutic encounters if you don't know how to manage this as a therapist you you can harm people, and I think you know that's again a whole other topic, isn't it? But it's very yeah, important.
1: That's, that's something I think we we could probably uh, pick up on in a in a, in a future episode in more, yeah. in more detail.
0: I think so. Yeah. So, um, just got one more thing I want to touch on because we am running out of time. But just wanted to say something like a little bit lighter about person-centered working that I just you know I, I really like, and and you said at the beginning. A lot of it is about individualising the work to the person's needs. So for me, if a client comes in and says to me, oh, I really want to develop my mindfulness stuff, then I might not, you know, I might be doing mindfulness things with them and that's not necessarily purely person-centred, except it is because it's what they ask me for, right? So I'm individualising the work using whatever tools. But the thing I love is also individualising even the way that I speak the, and, and again, this is not consciously done, but I'm, I'm sure you're the same. You you find that your language and your tone and your level of speech, even, even accent and humour, kind of comes to where the person that you're working with is. you know. Mm. And so all of that kind of individualises in the way that, that we work. So uh, to the extent that I, I find myself talking differently, you know, obviously because I, I work with... All kinds of people right from, you know, manual workers right the way up to professors, you know, and obviously people speak differently, don't they? They speak in in different language, almost a different language sometimes. And so part of the work is obviously you have to match. It's my job to match my language to that you know and that's another I actually love that because when I'm aware I notice myself doing it because it is automatic it's not like oh my god what word can I pull out the bag now to impress (laughs) it I don't mean that but I do mean that I, I I sometimes observe myself doing it and like especially if I'm working with very young people I'll find myself dropping into like you know some slang stuff or because that's how they talk you know and in order to kind of yeah again it's not it's not calculated it's coming from a genuine place but I think that's another a more lighthearted thing about how the person-centered approach
1: can be so interesting brilliant yeah I can very very much relate to that and I'm sure a lot of people (laughs) can yeah okay um you know it's 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 a kind of being responsive to the person isn't it
0: absolutely yeah
1: uh yeah So, so um, we we always finish on an exercise, give people an exercise to do. So, Mm -hmm. um, this one is based on what we were talking about before about the kind of visceral reactions we can have to people and how we deal with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I've got a little exercise which um, involves reflecting on that, and um, what I'd ask people to do is think of a famous person. Um, so maybe a celebrity or a politician um, who, um, when you see them, say on TV or on a newspaper, it kind of triggers a negative reaction in you. Um, I'm sure most people will be able to call somebody to mind. So what we've got to think here is uh, this person is a human being, seeing this person as a rounded human being rather than maybe the two-dimensional perception we have of them. So how, how do we do that? Well, going back to what we've been talking about, part of that is about self-awareness. So um, think about this person, hold them in your mind, and think about the reaction that they provoke in you, uh, which may be quite a visceral reaction. It may involve shouting, throwing stuff at the tally or whatever. Um, so think about what is it that about that person? Is it something about the way they speak, about the way they look, about something about what they stand for, their opinions, um, that really gets me going. So kind of just sit with that reaction, note it. Don't necessarily judge yourself for having that reaction, but just, just observe what it is. And then um, two things to do. Uh, two more things to do firstly think about what you find negative why might some other people have a different perspective on that person and find it positive so maybe for example it's a tv presenter who you find annoyingly over enthusiastic somebody else could watch them every day and say that person really brightens my day and lifts my mood and really makes me feel almost as if they're talking to me and recognise that that perspective on the person you really annoys you is just as valid as your perception of that person. And if you've got time, what I'd also suggest you do is because it's a famous person, there'll be probably plenty of information on the internet about them. Do five minutes of research on that person and maybe try and find something that alters your perception of them. So it could be you find out they've set up a charity or they've done something really kind for somebody that you think, oh gosh, they're actually, they're actually not, not, there's more to that person than I thought. So that's just a quick exercise of thinking about an individual and maybe trying to overcome our initial visceral reaction to that person.
0: Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I love that. That's great. I look forward to having a go at that later.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, 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 I've decided to do what I'm going for. There's
0: far too many people coming to mind. Oh, so. <laughs> well, thanks very much for that. Great. So thank you for listening to this episode. And just to let you know, our next episode, which will be coming out in September, will be Can AI, so artificial intelligence, Can AI Replace Us? Okay, that's a big question that I'm seeing popping up all over the internet at the moment. So we're going to be talking about that next time.
1: Thank you for listening. We hoped you enjoyed this episode.
0: How We Care is brought to you by Elizabeth Turt and Paul Gaunt via Simplecast.
1: Case studies are generalised and do not relate to individual clients.
0: Please subscribe for more episodes rate us and follow us on twitter details in the show notes for information on upcoming episodes
1: many thanks to ed tidy for the music and technical assistance
0: see you next time